brethren, very close to the Passover. If you look at the moon, it's filling up. It's amazing how God designed things. So inspiring. And the, the sky has been very clear in some of the latest nights. But we are exhorted by God to examine ourselves. And here we're about to take one more Passover before we take it with Jesus Christ. He said, I will not drink more of this fruit of the vine until I, I drink it new with you in the kingdom of my Father. So we're preparing for that beautiful moment. So we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. I had the wrong Bible here on this <laughs> on the the table. So, 2 Corinthians, you know that. We, we've been exhorted about this time after time. Well, let's read it again, because Passover is just a few days from today. Verse 8, verse 5 of the 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So thinking of these words, brethren, I was thinking in preparation for this Passover when we examine ourselves, we take that mirror of the law of God. Like the Apostle James says, we look at ourselves in the mirror. And part of that mirror, actually, the most important part of that law is the greatest commandment, which we find, we can go with, with me there, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this great commandment, he says, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, let the Lord our God, no, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Amazingly enough, brethren, we have two names of God here. Sometimes the editor, the translators, they don't... It's very important to know what name of God is being used. Because we might learn profound lessons just for knowing what name of God is right there. We find two of the names of God here. It says, Here, O Israel, the Lord, that's the eternal, Yahweh. Our God is our Elohim. That means plural. More than one, which you know it means the Father and the Son today, and means also the Word and God. And they are one. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, so it says the Eternal, our Elohim. There are two of them. When he speaks of the creation in Genesis, he says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. We find exactly the same lesson 
in the first chapter of John. Let's look there for a moment, my dear brethren. So we put this parallel here, and there he mentioned just one name of God, Elohim, but this in plural. And I think you all know this, but it's fascinating to think of those things, and this will help our examining of ourselves, and we will see as we go a little bit further. Then we go to first, no, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that's exactly what Genesis said, in the beginning God Elohim, plural, created the heavens and the earth. And we have the reflection here with a revelation that was not given in the Old Covenant. In the beginning was the word, you know, in, in English, English has many advantages as a language. It's very concise and it's very proper for creating new terms. For example, for the Internet, it's very creative language for technical terms. The whole world follows what is being coined as a new word in English for the information science. And, but it has a very serious lack here in this case. It has many advantages, but each language has its own genius. But you say, in the beginning was the word, you know, someone from a group whose name I don't want to remember would come and say, yeah, that means he was created in the beginning. Wrong. When you take the Greek language, the Latin language, French, Spanish, I don't know about German, but this tense indicates exactly that in the beginning he already was. The way the tense was inspired, was preserved, the Greek language means in the beginning he already was. That means he had no beginning, therefore he is eternal. The only two beings in the universe that have always existed are the Father and the Son, the Word, and God, Elohim. So he says, in the beginning was, and like I say to you, it's very good for you to keep in mind because this can give you a misunderstanding, which goes against all what the Bible teaches. The Word was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you have it, Elohim. The two of them are God, and they are one. Because the great commandment says that. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 4. Hear of Israel. The Lord is Yahweh, the eternal. Our God, Elohim. That means he's including the Father and the Son. The Word and God. The Lord, he repeats again, the eternal. Is one. And Christ said, you know this scripture, very important. John chapter 10, verse 30. The Father, I and the Father, we are one. And that's what's being stated in the greatest, greatest commandments. That, frankly, I don't know any group that understands this. For us, it's very simple. It's being given to us in a silver or golden plate by the Spirit of God in the Living Church of God, the bulwark, the Church of the Living God, of the truth. So this is very profound. We are going to see why. 
And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord eternal, our God, Elohim, the Lord eternal is one. And you know that Christ is called Yahweh in the Bible. And the Father also is called Yahweh. I give you an example, so one of many. In Psalm 110, we have a proof that the, the Father has the name of the Eternal. Psalm 110, this was quoted by Jesus Christ for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Lord said to my Lord, here the Lord is Yahweh, that means the Eternal, said to my Lord, which means Adonai, that means David called him the Lord, they were speaking of the Messiah. And people couldn't understand what Christ asked them, why does he call him my Lord? I mean, why do you say he's his son when he calls him my Lord? I won't go into explaining that, but this is fascinating. The Lord, that means Yahweh, said to my Lord, that means here is the Father telling to Jesus Christ, sit down at my right hand. And he has the name Yahweh. And you can go many places. This is a whole story. I didn't, I wasn't planning to spend much time, but this is, this is a fascinating thing. Christ said to the, to the Pharisees, Abraham saw my day, and uh, he saw, he, re, he rejoiced. And they told him, you are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? He said, before Abraham was, I am. That means Yahweh. That means he is eternal too. When Moses asked him, I go to the children of Israel in, in Egypt, and they ask me, what's the name of the Lord that has sent you to us? Tell them. And then Moses asked God, says, what should I tell them? And he said, tell them, I am have sent you. That's Jesus Christ speaking. So both of them are eternal, but you know the Father is greater. But anyway, I just wanted to have this in your hearts and minds. And let me go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. But it's amazing all what is in there. And this subject for books, and many books have been written, but very few people. Some people think God is just one being. Most of Christianity thinks God is three beings. And we know they are two beings. And the two are one. By the profound intimacy and harmony that there is between the two of them, which is a very important example for us before Passover. What was the last prayer of Jesus Christ? Let them be one like we are one. And we eat of the same bread, which is the body of Christ. So we better be in harmony with each other. So all of this is included here, brethren. I repeat, 6.4 from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there, the two of them, Elohim, he says, they are one eternal. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Brethren, I was trying to examine myself and asking myself, do I understand what this means in fullness? What does it mean to love God with all your heart? with all your soul and with all your might. What each one of those things mean? 
We'll try to study a little bit of that, brethren, and I don't pretend to exhaust the subject. It's too profound and it has too many dimensions for me to be able to explain everything here in one sermon. But it's a very important thing to understand for us because it's the greatest commandments. If we are examining ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, I'm obeying the greatest commandment. I'm really loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. And then it says here, in, and then interestingly, you can go now to Mark chapter 7, and you see, no, chapter 12, brethren, Mark chapter 12, and we see that someone asked Jesus Christ, what is the greatest commandment? It's interesting that he added one more dimension to the three aspects that are mentioned in Deuteronomy. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Let's read 28. Mark 12, verse 28. Then... One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well. Ask him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We already explained some of what is included in this small sentence. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, one. With all your soul, two. With all your mind, this was not in Deuteronomy 6. You understand that Christ came to reveal and install the new covenant and according to what was revealed through Jeremiah of that new covenant, the Apostle Paul quotes, in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, he says, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. So there is an important reason why Christ mentioned here in the greatest commandment, one more dimension that was not in Deuteronomy. But here he makes sure the four dimensions of that love are mentioned. I think in many ways, I don't pretend to master this, but the heart, in a way, includes the mind, too. So that's why often in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures we find the word heart used for mind, what we will call the mind today. But Christ wanted to make a clear uh, difference. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, number two, with all your mind, number three. So he's adding one new dimension right here. And then he says, And with all your strength. Last four. This is the first commandment, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. In what sense we have to love neighbor as ourselves? Because Christ came that we, we all would be one as he and the Father are one. And that's only achieved when we obey those four dimensions of love, brethren. So it's good to examine ourselves. 
Let's see. Let's start by the heart. You know, Christ said, blessed are the ones that have a pure heart because they will see God. That has more than one meaning. In Romans 1.20, I won't go there, but in Romans 1.20, Paul says that the attributes of the Godhead of the Creator are revealed from the beginning by the things that are made. But many of the scientists and intellectuals of the ancient world and of the present world, they did not recognize it. And they have no excuse because they were in their vein, in their ortho, they were their thoughts, and didn't, they didn't want to submit to that supreme authority. And their heart was darkened. And they cannot see God. I get up in the morning now, brethren. Springtime. It's blessed springtime. And these birds, when the first ray of the dawn starts to appear on the horizon before the sun comes out, boy, boy, it's a choir. It's just amazing, the variety of birds that we have here in North Carolina. And I thank God to be able to stand there in front. There are woods behind my house. And they are, <laughs> they are destroying the woods from North Carolina to build houses. The poor deer, I, don't, I think they are losing their habitat. But we are part of the problem in that sense also. Because we live there. But anyway, it's, it's magnificent. And see the colors? And those little things and all are bigger, perfectly designed. They're skilled to fly. They can go at high speed and in a second they open their and they, they stop and they they perch on a branch with a mastery absolutely astonishing. And they think that came out by itself. You need to be blind. So when people work to be obedient to God and to have a clean heart, they will see God. They will see God in the creation and enjoy his presence. People that work on those things, like we should be, we will say like Psalm 92. says, you rejoice me with your works. See the sceneries of the national park, for example, of this country of America, Yellowstone, the Glacier National Park. This land has been so blessed, brethren, and they reflect so much the majesty and the greatness of God. It's wonderful. So, coming back here, first thing we need to see God is to have a clean heart. And we will see him at the marriage of the Lamb in the third heaven upon the sea of glass. We will be singing the song of Moses before God the Father. We will be performing the wedding of us here with Jesus Christ, becoming one with him. It's absolutely amazing. And we will, you know, I mean, Revelation 22 says we will see God's face, who never has seen so far, nobody, only in vision, but not face to face. So, we need to have a clean heart. And also it's written, it's a beautiful statement in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, about having a clean heart, brethren. Chapter 22, 
in verse 11 says. Chapter 22 of the book of Proverbs, verse 11. So we're trying to analyze a little bit how we can love God with all our heart. So we start with the heart. The first thing God demands is our heart. There's something so special and that we cannot exhaust in the meaning. But let's try to understand some things for our benefit now that we prepare for Passover. He who loves purity of heart, I prefer this other translation, which says, by the grace of his lips, he will have the friendship of the king. Beautiful. He who loves the purity of heart, since of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, if someone is repentant and has the blood of Christ to clean up his heart with true repentance, which is what we are trying to do in examining ourselves. When we pray, we have the friendship of the King. Because of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and God rejoices in his children when they say the right thing. You will come out of the heart. You will have a deeper, profound relationship with Jesus Christ. So, let's examine, use what Christ said about the heart to examine ourselves. And let's go now to chapter 7 of the book of Mark. In chapter 7, Christ says what comes out of our natural heart and that we have to be in continual watching whatever comes in and whatever comes out so that we stay in the presence of God and have the friendship of the King. Chapter 7, verse 20 of the book of Mark. It says, Jesus Christ said, and he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. So this is a good way to examine ourselves. If God commands us to love him with all our heart, do we allow evil thoughts to come out of us? through our mouth, which in Matthew says is what comes out of the mouth with defiles man. Evil thoughts, adulteries. Brethren, I repeat this often in, in sermons, but we have a real plague in today's society because of technology. It might be not the real cause, but the heart of man who is not clean is behind it. The love of money is the root of all evil. It seems that the most popular websites on the Internet are pornography. Brethren, if we watch pornography, if we are married, we are committing adultery. And we are proving ourselves not fit to be faithful in what is little, to be able to be faithful forever. This is very serious in the eyes of God. And James says, true religion is keep yourself without spot of the world. 
and visit the widows and the orphans. So whoever, and I know in the church, and among the youth, among us, there are ones that are addicted to pornography. And whoever is married, man or woman, that looks at pornography is committing adultery. Is proving himself or herself unworthy to be the wife of Jesus Christ. We are not faithful, we are not being faithful in what is little. So it's the time to examine ourselves to see if we love God with all our heart. And he said, fornication. Now, if we are single and we watch pornography, we are committing fornication. And it's very clear in the book of Revelation, fornicators will be in the lake of fire. We have to let these things penetrate in us, brethren. We have to deny ourselves every day to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ. Take up the cross, that means put to death. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Because we don't flirt with sin. And Christ said, because wickedness abounds, the love of many will wax cold. That means to love is to obey. First John 5, 3. This is love, that we obey his commandments. You are committing fornication and adultery and still coming to church and playing church. Brethren, we are disqualifying ourselves. I speak for myself too. I can, he who stand, let he watch, lest he falls. We were invaded by that. And it's so common that even in the church, when people take it as something, oh, it's just common, it's just natural. That's what wickedness, when it abounds, it makes the love of many wax cold. And that's in the heart. And that's something we have to be radical. Put it to death. Flee from it. Christ said, if your eye is caused for you to covet, you know, he said, if your eye looks after a woman, you're already committing, I mean, to covet her, you're already committing either adultery or fornication. And he says, if your eye is a cause for you to fall, block it out. That so radical, he used a language like that. Because he doesn't go half-half. That doesn't mean literally, brethren, I hope you understand that. But he's using that type of speech to make people understand this is serious. It's better for you to enter with one eye in the life than with both to be cast into the lake of fire. So this is, this is not Something to take lightly, brethren. We have to hate sin. That's the fear of God, is to hate sin. So he says, fornication murders. Probably we are not killing anyone physically. But you know, in First John chapter 3, it says very clearly, if we hate a brother, we are, committed, we are committing murder. If we 
are not at peace and harmony with each other. Or we're keeping grudges among ourselves. If we go and sit to eat the Passover, to eat of the same body, with Christ came to die, that be one, one bread, one body with him, and we have this division in our hearts, we're taking the Passover in an unworthy manner. That's why he said you have to forgive from your heart. Forgive from the heart means to forget. How do you forget? Don't keep the thoughts coming to your mind. We have enough power from God with his spirit to reject any thought of grudges. God is not asking us impossible things and to reject it. And we reject it, we resist the devil and he will flee from us. And there is a moment where it kind of falls asleep. If we don't even think about the offense anymore. If we forget from the heart. But we are bringing it back time after time like a cow, you know, chewing her cud. It's going to stay there and the wound is not going to heal. So that's the type of state of mind God expects from us if we love him with all our heart before we take the Passover, brethren. Complete forgiveness. And if we have offended someone... He says it very clearly. You come to offer. Christ is the offer for sin, the offering for sin. You are going to offer in the presence of God the Father the body of Jesus Christ by taking the Passover, the wine and the bread. You are going to take that Passover and we are not, if we remember someone has something against us. We need to have the humility to go and seek that person and sincerely, from the heart, ask to be forgiven so we can take the Passover in a worthy manner, fulfilling that purpose of being one with each other, being one with Christ, being one with the Father. Otherwise, we are taking it in an unworthy manner. If we have not forgotten the offenses, that we don't keep chewing them up if we have not asked for forgiveness. Brethren, those are clear instructions for Jesus Christ. And it has to do with the heart. So, let's continue here. Fornication, murders, or already say thefts. Have we been, there are many ways to be a thief, you know. We don't work hard, and we are paid a full salary, and we are not really doing all what we can do to fulfill our duties or stealing. But the main thing we can consider, are we faithful in our tithes and offerings? Are we stealing from God, who gives us everything? It's important to really think about that, brethren. Covetousness. This is used of the Tenth Commandment, don't covet, you will not covet your brother's house, neither your neighbor's wife, neither his ox or his servant maid, maid servant or servant or anything from your neighbor. It says wickedness. We know all the transgressions of God's law are wicked. Deceit Sometimes we, we don't say that 
a lie, but we fabricate something to make it think the opposite of what it really is. <laughs> we are lying in a very uh, subtle way sometimes. We should be open with ourselves and open and say the truth, brethren. God hates lies. He says, a liar will not stand in my presence. Who is the father of lies? Jesus, we know, Satan the devil. He will not, he did not stand in the presence of God. So God hates that. Deceit. Yes, there's much more to say. You can make a whole study about this, brethren. But I mentioned some of the things that come out of the heart so we really understand what it means to love God with all our heart. The other one is licentiousness, which is not real discernment of God's law and allows, allowing ourselves to break the law because there is much wickedness. We are losing discernment of what is sin and what is not, being surrounded by such an avalanche of sin in the entertainment that surrounds us day and night. An evil eye, that means envy. You remember that proverb says, cruel is wrath and impetuous is furor, but who can stand before envy? Satan is and was envious of God. He covets his position. He wants to be in that place. And he fights for it, for it day and night. He wants to be God. And that's his greatest frustration. He was not created to be God, but to be a servant of those that will constitute the family of God. He has never accepted the role that was given to him by creation. You read in book... The book of Hebrews, that's what angels create, were created for. To be servants of those that will inherit salvation means those that will enter into the family of God by begetter a new birth. Angels were never begotten, and they don't have that privilege. They have another function. If we don't accept the function that's given to us, it's just for frustration. It's like uh, the heart would like to do the role of the kidneys. <laughs> Imagine that. Of the king is the role of the heart. God established everything in perfect order. And we should be very happy with what we have, what we're being given. Another problem with envy, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4, 4, every excellence of works will awake the envy in others. And sometimes we see people that they have talents that, that we don't have. I got to recognize that a lot because there's a lot of technology going around and I don't like it and I've been kind of staying away from it. And uh, well, God has provided wonderful assistance and people that can manage work with the Internet in a wonderful ways. What can I say? I have to respect that and I am thankful to God that he provides people that can do what I cannot do. And the same thing with talent. Some people have a talent that I don't have. I'm going to cover it and be kind of envious and have a resentment because I don't have it. Or I'm going to rejoice because God is blessing one of his children and it's for his glory. When he develops his talents that probably I don't have. 
So, like Solomon said, if somebody achieves something, excellence, the natural reaction of a natural heart, who is not led by the fear of God, is to envy. And remember, the rebellion of Satan was because he wanted to be God. He was envious of God. He wanted to sit on his throne. Why did Cain, I would say, who, who can stand before envy? It's horrible. Why did Cain kill Abel? He was envious because God did not accept his offering. And you know, brethren, I think I found, I have found, now the, the offerings are coming. I have thought often and hear so many explanations of why God did not accept the offering of Cain. You know, sometimes the answer is somewhere where we don't think about. I don't pretend it's the definite answer, but I say it to you. Uh, it is clearly stated that Abel offered to God of the best he had and the fattest of his lambs. He offered the sacrifice to God. And Cain also offered from the product of the land. There's nothing wrong. There is clearly lawful before God to offer what we call a meal offering. The instructions are clearly stated in the book of Leviticus. So it's not because he didn't pour blood in his sacrifice. He was a man, he was a farmer, so he brought what... In a book of Numbers, chapter 18, you can find it there. I challenge you to do that. I think it's the answer. God says to the Levites, when you receive the tithes of the children of Israel, and you present a tithe from that tithe before God, be sure to give the best, so that there is no sin in you. That's in the book of Numbers chapter 18. What was the sin of Cain? He kept the best for himself and gave whatever not was of the same quality to God. I think that's a very... Maybe we should look at it, brethren, because now we're preparing for... And that's part of the heart. It's the attitude of the heart. Maybe we're not going to give a fortune, but we have to give an offering of quality. An offering that comes from the heart and not trying to give the least we can to God when he provides everything for us. I don't know if I mark this here, but I think it's chapter 18 of the book of, of, let me find it here, brethren. It's important for that because that, I find that an explanation which is pretty clear of why God did not accept. And he told Cain, if you know to do well, if you don't do it, you can do it if you want. You can resist sin. But he was envious of his brother. And his attitude was not correct. Let me see. Yes. In, it's exactly in Numbers 31 and 32. Let's keep that in mind for the offerings of the season of the year, which we are approaching now. Chapter 18, the two last verses says, You may eat 
in any, in any place, you and your household speaking to the Levites, for it's your reward for the work in the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall bear no sin because of it when you have lifted up the best of it. But you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel unless you die. So the attitude which we serve has to be such that if we had a flock or we had a harvest, we would be giving to God the best of it. He's the creator. He, he needs to be honored by us in giving him the best. And that was, in part, maybe there are other aspects, but that was the sin of Cain. Because it says he brought from the product of the land. But it doesn't say he brought the best. And it says that about Abel. If he had, in the book of Malachi, you find that again. It says, you are going to give me as a sacrifice an animal that is missing an eye or is limping or has any defect. That's an offense to God. So that's something we should take into consideration for the offerings. What attitude do we have when we give? Are we giving an offering of, from the heart? Offering of sincerity and gratitude? Or are we trying to give the least we can? That's very important. Because there is a law. Give and will be given unto you. It's an investment. It's not an expense. It's an investment. Brethren, we have to be convicted, convinced of that. So let's continue here with the heart in Mark 7, dear brethren. Mark 7. <clears throat> we continue here. He says, thefts, covetousness. That might be a sin. And I covet the best part of my harvest and don't give it to God, keep it for myself when he gives us everything. Wickedness, all types of transgressions, deceit, we already saw that, licentiousness, an evil eye, that's envy. You know, Satan rebelled out of envy. Jesus Christ was delivered by envy. Pilate realized that. He knew that because they were envious of him, they were delivering him. And he knew there was no guilt in him. He said he knew that for envy... They have delivered him. Joseph was sold by his brethren because of envy. So we better stay away from that and change our heart in rejoicing when someone does an excellent work or someone is blessed financially or someone is ordained and we are not ordained, etc., etc. We should rejoice because that's for the glory of God and we should not covet that for ourselves but have this big picture. God is developing a wonderful family with different talents and different functions. We should not be envious, brethren. That's an evil eye. Blasphemy, pride. How do we respond to correction? It's the best instrument, high-tech instrument for pride and humility. How would you react to correction? If you love those, we love, if we love those that correct us, we have the right attitude. 
Well, God says, don't correct a proud man. He will hate you. So if we react in a negative way when we receive correction, we have pride. Our heart is not clean. And God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble. So all these things are in the heart. You have to put them to death, one by one, to have a clean heart. Foolishness, lack of wisdom. We have a duty to ask God for wisdom and take right decisions. And we can read the book of Proverbs how many times foolishness is mentioned. And the opposite is also mentioned there. That would be a good study to do, my dear brethren. So to have a clean heart, there we have a task to examine ourselves and not hide, not commit deceit in our own hearts, which is deceitful. We have to be able to recognize our false brethren because it's written in Proverbs 28, verse 13. Let's read that one. Proverbs 28, verse 13. To have a clean heart, we have to practice this. It says, 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins, that's deceit, will not prosper. He will not be loved. He will not have the friendship of the king because there is no purity. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So we have to be realistic, brethren. I start with myself and remember what John says in his first epistle when we examine our hearts, brethren. And he says, in his first epistle, chapter 1 of the book of John, of the epistle of John, chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's deceit. So we should take into account Proverbs 28:13: He who hides his sins will not prosper. He doesn't have a clean heart. And the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We better ask God, like David says, show me even my hidden things, my hidden sins, sins that I commit by ignorance. There are still sins. God says, if we sin, that's book of Leviticus, which we hearing the announcements by the words that Dr. Wenail writes, those things are not abolished. If we sin and we don't know what we are committing is a sin, it's still a sin. It has less consequences, but still we are guilty until we repent of it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, as the proverb says, he who confesses this and departs. It's not enough to confess, I have sinned. There has to be a change. That's true repentance. He who confesses our sins, he is faithful. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, have, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we confess, we repent, and we change. Then we have a clean heart. 
and we are fulfilling the first and greatest commandment. If we say that we have no sin, verse 10, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And John, the, the, beloved, the beloved disciples, the one writing his, he's including himself, that we transgress, brethren, and we need to be aware of it and repent and change and grow and not continue practice it, practicing it. Chapter 2, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with our dear Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In due time, now only the first fruits like we are, are being reconciled to God. After the Day of Atonement, which is like the second phase of the same sacrifice, the whole world will be put in harmony with God. We have the privilege of being firstborn, said, like this time of Passover declares for us. It's, what, it's the beginning of God's plan. But remember that the Day of Atonement is there too, that he will open salvation for the rest of the world as his return. So, <clears throat> that, so what we need to have is a clean heart and have the friendship of the king. If we repent, we examine ourselves and not deceive ourselves, then we have a clean heart, we can, we can have that love and obey that commandment, love God with all our heart, when it has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the Apostle Paul has a beautiful scripture about that in, the book, in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. Let's read for a moment that scripture. Chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. It says, What is that? In verse, chapter 9, verse 13. For if by the blood of bulls, for if the blood of bulls, that's 9.13 of Hebrews, and goats and the ashes of a heifer, heifer, sprinkling the unclean physically, they only could understand that far. Their hearts, only very few, like Moses and Others had a clean heart. God is teaching a lesson through physical uncleanness. And the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God with a clean heart, with all the heart. Now let's look a little bit about the soul. As I told you, I'm not exhausting this subject, brethren. You can go on and on about this. It's so profound. But the soul, 
We are living souls, brethren. God, He blew the, the spirit of life into Adam's nostrils and He became a living soul. Well, that life came from outside. We don't have inherent, inherent, I don't know how you pronounce that, inherent life. Is that okay? I, we have a chief editor over there. He can help me. <laughs> inherent. Is that acceptable? Thank you, sir. I'm glad he's here. <laughs> okay. We don't have inherent life, brethren. It was through that oxygen that man became a living soul. And we are all living souls exactly like Adam was. And not only the oxygen. We need the food. We need the water. What we drink to keep that soul alive. So we become hungry and we become thirsty. That's why we, when we fast, God says, afflict your souls. Because when you are fasting, you realize we need food, you know, and the body is asking for it. You feel a desire for food. It's like when someone is drowning and someone wants to help, you would grab them. You won't let it go for anything. You feel the need for food. Because we don't have inner inherent life. The only two. Christ said, the Father has inherent life. The Son also, he gave to the Son to have inherent. They produce life. The vision that John had of the throne of God, when this, the Father and the Son are sitting on that throne in chapter 22, chapter 22, verse 1, there's the two of them sitting on the throne, and a river of living water flows from there. And the heavens of the heavens cannot sustain it. Cannot. He fills the heavens of the heavens with his presence, physically and spiritually. So God is a continual source of life, brethren. And we don't depend on him physically and spiritually. We will die because we don't have inherent life. So, physically, let's see some examples. There are many in the Bible. But let's see some examples of how we... But the first one is when we fast. We afflict the soul because we don't have that life and we need it coming from, from outside and it comes all from God. He created everything. Food comes from God. Everything comes from Him. Everything good. So let's look at Psalm 107 to see some examples of how we thirst and how we are hungry. Oh dear. Mr. Weston is watching me. <laughs> I still have a few minutes here. <laughs> Let's look at Psalm 107, my dear brethren, and see an example of physical thirst and hunger because we don't have inherent life. Only God has it. And that's the profound lesson of fasting. We cannot live without Him. Physically and spiritually. In chapter 107 of the book of Psalms, verse 4. They wandered in the wilderness, speaking of physical Israel, in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. 
There you go. We are a living soul, but a living soul without, that does not produce life, consumes life. That's where we are, brethren, spiritually and physically. So he says, they were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. There you have it. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. That's spiritually. Now let's look how we can love with, with, all our, with our soul. We explain a little bit of the heart. We have cleaned, it, cleaned the heart so there's, pla there's place for Jesus Christ to live there. Because Paul says in Ephesians, like I say, I don't exhaust that subject. Paul says, Jesus, Jesus Christ lived by faith in your hearts. He can live there only if we have a clean heart. Brethren, we have clean attitude. So let's look how David expressed that in a spiritual sense. In chapter 63 of the book of Psalms, it says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. So there is hunger and thirst, spiritually speaking. And Christ said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. And David says here, uh, in this, he longs, you know, he thirsts and hungers for God's presence, and this dry wilderness will inspire him even more to make it more real. As it, as it. But says, verse 5, yeah, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, Christ said. He says, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. So we hunger and thirst. God will come to us. Brethren, and fill us with his presence, and we'll be satisfied. Let's look at Psalm 42. Going a little bit farther here. Psalm 42, which you all know, I'm convinced. Chapter 42, to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for God, for the living God. In verse 4 says, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. Verse 5, Why are you cast down of my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted 
within me, hoping God, for I shall yet praise him. Christ said to the Samaritan woman, if someone drinks of the water I will give him or her, he will never thirst. I remember, brethren, in my youth and when I was in Europe, I was looking for an answer of the reason why we're here, which many of us have. I studied the Oriental philosophy. I studied the German philosophers, Greek philosophers, French, not all of them, a few of them, French philosophers, the mystics of the Catholic Church, looking and looking for something that would satisfy my soul. But when God called me to this church, brethren, I knew this is it. This is it. He said he will never thirst. Now, we don't thirst if we stay close to him. But if we let circumstances and other things, sometimes we are not close to God. If we are spiritually alive, we'll thirst. We need that presence to fill us with that certainty that we are on the right path, that it is the truth, that we're being fed what no one else knows in the world, brethren. And he said, also, he who comes to me in chapter 6, he will never thirst, he will never be hungry. Again, as long as we are close to him. If we are not close to him, if we are spiritually alive, we should be thirsty and we should be hungry for that presence, for that relationship with God. So if we put it to work and we seek him like David and these sons of Korah, and we really want to be filled up with his presence, we will fast, we will pray, we will seek God aggressively like Daniel, and we will be filled. And we will know this is it. There's nothing else. I knew it. That's when all these, you know, rebellions and deviation in the days of our former association and other things, I know where else we will go. Like Peter says to Jesus Christ, you have words of eternal life. Where else we will go? He told them, you want to go too? Like those people that were offended because Christ said, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And Peter said, where we shall go? You have words of eternal life. And God was, Christ was speaking of being full with his presence and with his love. So that is loving God with all our souls. It's an example. I'm not exhausting the subject, brethren. And in Psalm 119, you find the compilation of those four dimensions with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your might. And I tell you, brethren, if we really want to overcome, God is asking all your might. We cannot just say, yeah, God will do it for me. You know, I don't have to make that big effort because God would fill me with his power. But when does God fill us with his power? I think we can learn a lesson of Jacob wrestling all night with God. He put him to the limit. God knew exactly. Now, he could have put him in orbit, <laughs> but he would pressure him. And he would fight all night. And then he said, God said, let me go. And he said, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it applies, brethren, with all our might. If we want to overcome, God demands a total effort from our part. He's asking it in his first commandment. You love me with all your might. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we need to be absolutely intense. The kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. So we fight temptation with all our might and God, God expects that. Then he comes to our rescue. But if we are lukewarm, we will be defeated by the prince of the power of the air. We will not be able to overcome. But if we are determined, we make all the effort with this little strength we have. But we are not lukewarm. And then we cry out to God and say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God comes to our rescue. And we will come overcomers and real children of Israel, which means he who overcomes with God. But he had to fight all night and then cling to God and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's the way we have to love God with all our might and overcome temptation. We put all our might in it. And then God comes to our rescue. And we become overcomers. But we cannot be lukewarm. Just a little effort here who are taking by the power of the prince of the, you know, the power of the air. He will take us. So this is some examples how to love God with all your soul is knowing that he's the only one who can fill our hunger and our thirst and give meaning to our life and knowing that all the rest will be given, will be added unto us when God is number one. Even the love to the brethren because that will flow from God through us like living waters. And let's take a few examples in Psalm 119. And you see that over and over. Let's review here Psalm 119, verse 2. Psalm 119, verse 2. We're going to see the heart and the soul here. And we'll see the might, I've already explained it to you, is to put all our strength. Remember, God says, you love me with all your might. That means all what we have, we have to do the whole effort and he will come to our rescue. Now he did bless Jacob after wrestling with him all night. 119 verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. We already read all the things we have to take out of the heart so we can seek him with the whole heart without deceit. And then we, we find many, many expressions. Verse 7, I will praise you up, with uprightness up of heart. When? When it's clean. When we have repented, we have acknowledged, and we have been honest. And it says in verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, you have to... We have to fill our heart with the word of God so we have the strength and the discernment not to sin against him. Let's look a few here of the soul. In verse 20, chapter 119 of the book of Psalms, verse 20. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. That means the soul also have hunger and will live by the word of God. So we are hungry of the word of God to nourish our souls. In uh, verse 25, my soul clings to the dust 
Revive me according to your word. Verse 28. My soul melts from, from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. That's what David was, brethren, what we have to learn to be. Let's look at one about the heart here. Verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Another one about the heart. Verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness, which we read in Mark 7 is some of the things that make us unclean before God, covetousness. Then we have more of the heart in verse 58. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. So we are cleansed and that heart desires that righteousness of God. Verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe your commandments. 73. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. That means to obey with the mind, obey with the heart, obey with the soul. Then you can find, brethren, that's it's amazing, the depths about this, this psalm. 135, verse 135, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So there you have, brethren, lessons concerning the mind and the heart. I mentioned the strength means God requires all our might. We cannot fight sin half and half saying, oh, God is going to come to my rescue if we are not doing with all what we have and claiming for his blessing and his help. Then we become Israel, overcomers with God. But he had to fight all night before he was blessed and his name changed. So that's a lesson before their brethren. So all of this is interest is part of the first commandment. And that commandment says, The Lord, the eternal, our Elohim, the eternal is one God. And he gives those commandments. Those are the ones that we allow, uh, will allow us to be one with God. That's what is part of the law. It is the supreme prayer of Jesus Christ had to do with it. Let's look at John 17, my dear brethren. Chapter 17 of the book of John. In chapter 17 and verse 11, look what it says. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. How can we be one with each other if we have a clean heart? If we hunger and thirst for the word of God and put it to work. If we meditate in God's law day and night so we walk and every decision we make is guided by his word. We become one with each other because we will know how to deal with the brethren and we will have the strength flowing from God. 
So the being one and obeying, why does God put those two things in the greatest commandment? Because it's the only way we can obey that commandment and become one with each other and become one with God. Let's look at chapter 17 again of the book of John, verse 20. I do not pray for this alone, so he's praying for us too, but also for those who will be who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. In chapter 10 of the book of Corinthians says, we all eat of the same bread. One bread is the body of Christ because we're part of that bread. We're part of that body. And here he says, I do not pray for this alone, but also for those who will believe me through their word, that they all may be one. That means that we learn to obey God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and our might. That's the only way we can be one with each other. And then we will obey the first commandment. And it's linked to the sublime purpose of what the church understands God is reproducing himself. One, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What does that mean? Our Lord is one, and you will be one with me. You will be God too. You will be Elohim. Of course, not of the same power. But we will be part of that unity. That's what Christ died for. That's an amazing thing. And the only way we can achieve it is by obeying the first commandment. It's just amazing. And the glory which you have given, you gave me, the glory that you gave me, that means that rank of divinity, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. This is supreme, brethren. What God is asking from us is only by his power we can achieve. But we need to put all our power in there, our might. I in them, and you in me, and they, that they may be perfect in one, and that the word, the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Brethren, that was the last prayer of Jesus Christ. And the greatest commandment says, listen, Israel, hear. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your might. That means you become one with us too. And God will be all in all. That's the profound meaning in how much we have examined ourselves, brethren, before Passover. May the eternal bless you. Pray for me. I'm going to South America on Monday to keep Passover with the brethren there. Have a great Passover, dear brethren, and a great feast.